Hello and welcome to The Advance, conversations about news and the Mid-America Union Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I'm Pablo Colindres, Digital Media Manager at the MAUC. This week, I chat with Dr. Calvin Rock, author of Protest and Progress, Black Seventh-day Adventist Leadership, and the Push for Parity. We talk about the history of the struggle for equality in the church and how we can learn to apply those lessons in today's church. Yeah, this is Calvin Rock. I am retired pastor, administrator, living in Las Vegas, Nevada, and have been here since 2002. Okay. And um, we're here to talk about your our latest book here, Protest and Progress, Black Seventh-day Adventist Leadership and the Push for Parity. Um, and this book was just released, right, this month? Am I, am I correct in that? That's true. Yeah. Okay. And um, I, 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 I've read through it this past week, and I found it really engaging um, and it's thoroughly researched. I love how you have the end notes at the end of every chapter and the appendix. Um, you know, it makes it gives it more teeth when you have uh, all this research that you obviously did. Um, can you tell me a bit about the, the process you went through when you wrote this book? What, where did the idea come from? Yes. My wife's father, in answer to your question as to background for the book, Mm -hmm. I think there are two primary sources that have to be recognized. One is my wife's work as archivist for 12 years during my 14-year presidency at Oakwood College, now Oakwood University. And, of course, she became very acquainted with a lot of written sources and unearthed and dug up a lot of things herself that she uh, left with the university now. And in addition to that, was personal witness to a lot of history because her father was a teacher and a pastor and became the second black president of Oakwood College, 1945 to 1954, and the first black vice president of the General Conference and served there for a number of years with distinction. So she had and has a very intimate and up-close and personal look at a lot of things and a lot of personalities. And I tapped into right. that resource. And then in my own background, my grandmother, Etta Littlejohn Bradford, accepted the gospel as preached by the mission that was floating down the Mississippi River, the boat Morning Star, built by Edson White, the son of Ellen White, on Lake Michigan that sailed down onto the Mississippi River, and from which he spoke to the children of the recently freed slaves. She was, in fact, one of the original 16 students at Oakwood Industrial Training School, um, when it opened in 1896. He was one of the original students in 1896. So, and we've had pastors and teachers and secretaries and ministers and ministers' wives and the administrator, you know, we, the the family has been 
saturated with responsibility and presence in the church ever since 1896, shall I say. So my own background right. is full of uh, that kind of association and acquaintance. Yeah, and um, I've I read through that in the uh, introduction to your book, and I thought that your personal history was very, very interesting. Um, and uh, of course, you, you you go on to say that you your family settled in Harlem, and um, and you were you were growing up um, right around the time of the Harlem Re Renaissance. How um, did did any of that influence you uh, in your life? Not very directly. You got to remember, uh, I was born in 1930, and the Renaissance was already begun. But um, I was too young to appreciate all that happened uh, in the late 30s, even. And mm -hmm. so I, I was not personally. I admire it. I read about it, but I was right. too young to be touched by it. And maybe the culture, the the way the community functioned, uh, was influenced by what was going on, and therefore, unbeknowing, I I may have been influenced, but nothing direct that I could cite. But you tell a story that uh, really hits close to home because I'm from Texas. And you talk about your first trip out to Oakwood, yeah, and um, uh, and something that happened in the bus there. Could you uh, care to explain? Uh, yeah, I was eleven when my mother moved to L.A. with my sister and me. My sister was nine months younger, but we moved to L.A. and was. I never thought of it as a culture shock. Now that you use that term, maybe it was, but it sure was okay. different. It was different because <laughs> in New York, it was in Harlem, it was all black. You know, occasionally we would go to a, um, a picnic. I mean, the church had its annual picnic, and we'd go to a place called Bear Mountain, and there'd be other groups there. And there were other indications of other other cultures and ethnics, um, but it was it was a black world, a black church, a black schools, black pastors, and that's all we saw. Of course, um, mm -hmm. uh, we weren't black then; we were just colored <laughs> uh, right. or Negro later. But the point I was making in the book is that when I got to L.A., it 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 was a burst of sunshine almost because. Um, here were here were people from Asia and um, uh, the people from from Latin America, and you know the, the 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 world burst open in terms of its cultural variety for me, right. and we were living near. Um, Chinese and Japanese and Mexicans and and it was it was great it was exciting and different and to a degree as I developed because it was 11 when I went there but by the time I was 12 and 13 and 14 my eyes were really opening to uh, mm -hmm. cultural difference and racism, which hadn't been a right. big thing when I was in New York, because I was protected primarily. But right. uh, when I was 18, and by that time I was fully aware, I was reading papers and 
And remember, World War II was from 41 to 45, and during that stretch, uh, I read a lot as I grew older and became 14, 15, and on. Mm -hmm. All of the Ku Klux Klan activities in the South, and even the unfair and unfortunate incidents on the West Coast where I was that occasionally propped up, and some of the right, things that yeah. were happening in church schools, our little church school was all black there, and when some of our folk finished the eighth grade and went to Linwood Academy, which was practically all white, their parents had difficulty, and children would come back with horror stories, and I, mm. I, I, I became very much aware uh, by the time I was even 13, 14, 15, I was very much aware and somewhat disenchanted and I have to say even a bit hostile in my inner soul. But right. uh, I had not been accosted personally until, and I guess you could call it accosted, uh, at mm -hmm. age 18 that, in fact, I was probably... I just turned 18 in July, and I was on my way to Oakwood in September, I guess it was. And the trailway bus, you know, took off, and I was happy going to Oakwood College, which uh, thing to which I was looking very, very, very much. And right. as we got out of California and got into Texas, hadn't gone but a few miles, maybe half an hour, an hour, <clears throat> the uh, bus driver pulled over and told me to go to the back of the bus. I was seated near the front, <clears throat> and I told him I wasn't going anywhere. I paid like everybody else. And he stood up over me and said, well, you will go. And he went to the door and opened the door and said, and if you don't, I'm going to call the police. And I, and the bus was stopped. I mean, he stopped the bus, and nobody was around. There were no houses. I couldn't see any any help from anybody. <laughs> I looked around, right. and all the other passengers were white, and they were all looking quiet. I don't. I don't think. I didn't assume that they sympathized with him, but on the other hand, I didn't hear anybody come to my rescue. And I, and I had read about the lynchings and all that. And he's going to call the police. I figured, well, you know, I'd be in jail, and I didn't know what would happen, and my poor mother would be worried to death, and I'd spend my freshman year in some Texas jail. So I got up and got my little belongings and moved about three quarters of the way to the back. I didn't go all the back, all the way back. I had to be a little. A little stubborn, right. <laughs> but I went mm -hmm. back far enough not to have to uh, have any physical uh, altercations and be arrested and so forth. Right. Um, now, um, <laughs> uh, as Hispanic uh, living in the South as well, I, I've driven through the South going all my way to Florida on a family vacation. And, you know, when you cross, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, and um, late at night, I remember um, my parents stopping for fuel. And since I'm the lighter skinned one in my family, they would have me go up to the uh, to the attendant and and talk to them. Um, but how was it uh, going to school in Oakwood during the uh, um, well, when the, basically the start, I guess, of the civil rights movement, the the, the beginning of it? How did it feel? Well. Oakwood was an island to itself, and I cannot remember having any unpleasantries 
in the city of Huntsville. Uh, there were colored only, white only signs in some places, but they were not as prevalent as they were in other states and cities in the South. Uh, I think that's because even then, Oakwood had an ameliorating influence in this regard. Um, you know, there was prejudice and, and there was hostility, I'm sure. But we, we college students at that point were not we're not protesting in the communities. We didn't rail against any of that. And we had days to go to the city. The young, the men went to town on Monday and Wednesday and the girls on Tuesdays and Thursdays, something like that. And so we went on the school bus. Generally, nobody had cars back there. Oh, not many people had cars. So we were... We get out of the the bus and go in the store, and the bus would wait around for an hour or two while we shopped or did whatever we were doing. Then we get back in and go back to the campus. So we were pretty well contained and protected. And I can't remember any any altercations or any any problems. Uh, we were told that we were supposed to say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am to white people. And uh, I can remember struggling with that. And, right. and I think that I did it. But I, other than that, I can't remember any, um, any strain that I had amongst. In fact, some of them are very, very, very nice, very kind. Okay. Yeah, because I, I just keep thinking that this is George Wallace's Alabama. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he he didn't have a lot of influence. Even then, Huntsville was a science and edu an educated city. You know, okay. Huntsville yeah. has three universities in it now, and then they had at least two. Maybe the third one was already begun the University of Alabama at Huntsville, but mm -hmm. uh, it already had Alabama A&M University, which is a black state school, and Oakwood, which has been there since 1896 in various forms or as it grew. Right. So uh, Oakwood had a good reputation, and the NASA and the U.S. government was very much into bringing over the German scientists. Uh, Werner von Braun and others had already been in mm -hmm. Huntsville, and a lot of scientific research was being done. So it was more enlightened. It was a, a community more enlightened than the average southern mm -hmm. city. Right. That's uh, okay. That's amazing. You, 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 you. Split up your book into uh, historical parts, and so you have the the first part deals with how the the black church began, really, and um, uh, how even the Seventh Day Adventist Church was abolitionist in its in its beginnings. Yes, but as it as as time went on, it became a bit more conservative. Yes, and um, you talk about 
an issue I see a lot uh, from people who push back against uh, people who want social change. Uh, you bring up the, um, uh, the, the, I guess the the issue is when people say, "Oh, I know that some, there's something bad going on." But that's the way it's going to be. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And we should probably just wait for Jesus to return to fix things. Yeah. You mentioned that in the beginning of the book, but I think like you could probably make it a recurring statement for the rest of the book as well and, and today's times. Well, that attitude is very consistent with uh, conservative religionists. People... The more conservative, there are studies that show that the more theologically conservative a church or denomination is, the more socially conservative they are. There is a, right. there's a correlation between theological conservatism, doctrinal conservatism, and social conservatism. And it's expressed exactly like you've stated it. A lot of it is... Um, it's it's too dense, it's too thick, it's too broad, we can't do anything about it, but everybody needs to pray and when Jesus comes he will he'll 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 bring justice and and we'll we'll get it all done then. That's one issue. The other issue that's one issue, yeah. The other issue is simply that Christianity has in its very foundation the seeds of social conservatism. And right. that is not because of what Jesus did or said, but the way that his actions and words have been interpreted. So right. that um, from the very beginning, many of the church fathers, and I mentioned one or two, I think, in the book, um, if I didn't, I should have, but I'm trying to remember. But uh, from the very beginning, uh, and even through the Reformation, very specifically in the Reformation, Calvin and Luther and others, right. but the, the, these brethren were, were decidedly uh, contributors to social conservatism because of the stances that they took and because of the way they interpreted uh, the actions of Christ. That's another thing. And then a third factor is that Christianity itself, maybe not Christianity, but religion is a conservative function. Um, mm -hmm. when there's an adherence to, to something that's made sacred. Yeah, right? they, there's what they call the sacralization and the routinization uh, that goes on because if you've done it one way, if your parents did it that way, your parents were good people, they did it that way, they prayed, and then you come along and change it, you are subliminally expressing disrespect to your parents because right, what they them, did yeah. was wrong. So, and and what, not just your parents, but the church members where you were born, how the church functioned, and it goes on, not only in the social arena, but even in the physical arrangements of churches. You know how it is. Church members are mm -hmm. so slow to change. They, many times the building could be falling in, falling down, but they they don't want to build a new one, some of them. They want to stay right there. It's, it's, right. it's, a, it's a function that, uh, I guess, is natural in some regards, and you have to have enlightened people to come along and and help clean that up. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned here a, a lot. I mean, it's even the title, the word protest. And um, that usually uh, brings up, I, uh, I mean, uh, you know, um, fear almost in some people, the word protest. Um, but I love that when you go through these, you know, never once do you see like uh, an insurrection or something like that. But um, I did want to talk about that. Um, when you say protest, um, what is the connotation that you're using? And um, um, because for, for me, uh, I, I like to think of it as uh, Tanahasi Coates. He speaks of it as the beautiful struggle, you know, for equality. Um, and I think that's really what what you're going after here. Um, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not speaking of throwing Molotov cocktails and lighting fires, but uh, speaking up, speaking up, right. taking a stance, um, writing papers and making speeches and and um, making plans and structuring uh, orders of operation that are for the betterment of your people. And not just not just sitting down or lying down and doing nothing, but being activist in regards to social issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, like you said, there's there's this uh, trend in, in the church at large to not want to get involved. Um, and, and there are some issues that some argue that maybe we shouldn't get involved in, but. Um, um, how do you know, how, how would you say that we should make that difference? Well, I don't know of any difference. I, I think we should get involved in all social issues mm. that are legitimate in terms of, of um, scriptural, um, doctrinal emphasis. Uh, I wouldn't get involved in the social issues that are being conducted by people who are striving to accomplish states in society or the church that are that are um, not approved by scripture you know okay uh moving in here with the with the with the book here uh, the first part of your book uh, talks about um the, the push uh, for social administrative participation, basically uh, inclusion, yeah. right? Um, how, how can this community be included in the church's doings? Um, and uh, it, it, it almost seems like it failed at first. It, um, yeah, it did. The, the first, the first mm-hmm. big push was for full inclusion. From the beginning of uh, 1898, before that, there were very few blacks. There weren't enough. I think the century, the 20th century, began with about 100 black Adventists. So by, 18, by uh, 1898, there were just a few. And the first protest was in that year. And I don't know that he called it a protest, but... Uh, Charles Kinney, who later became the first ordained black Adventist pastor, um, spoke to the white leadership in that area about the fact that the colored people who were at the camp meeting there in Kentucky were made to sit in the back. And he protested. Mm -hmm. He said it wasn't right. He said that uh, 
it made it difficult for the blacks to do evangelism because other blacks would say, yeah, but your church makes everybody sit in the back. And yet he understood that if they sat anywhere else, it would be hard on the whites to do their evangelism because the whites in the community would say, yeah, but you let black people sit up where the white people. So it was a catch-22. And um, he didn't he didn't um, exoriate the brethren, but he said something's got to happen, and one of these days we're probably going to have to have our own conferences where this thing won't go on. And that was the first right. mention of colored conferences. But um, he still pushed for full inclusion, and by and large, they all the leaders did up through around 29 or 30, 1929 or 30. There were a few like um, Humphrey in New York and the Manns Brothers in Georgia, a few more vigorous protesters who mm -hmm. uh, got tired of asking for inclusion. But by and large, the main voices in the first two decades from the teens and the 20s through the 20s uh, were pushing for full integration. They wanted to be fully involved on the on the committees and uh, in in administration and in seating and so forth. Right. Um, yeah, as we said, uh, this initial push failed, but um, afterwards, your your next section. Um, it kind of deals with like a couple of half steps forward, you know, and some compromises that happened. Um, what are some lessons that we can learn from what happened afterwards, whenever the first regional conferences were formed and all that? Well, in 1928 to 20, in 1928 to 30, the discussions began about colored conferences. And yeah. in the meetings then, and the white brethren, who were the leaders, of course, told the black brothers, no, we don't want any colored conferences, but we will do this and that. We will give you uh, more audience with this committee and the membership in this committee, and we will propose to give you more money here and more money there. There were attempts to address the needs in the black community without having black conferences. And of course, mm -hmm. they, they put together something called the, uh, the Resolution of 1929, which was an outline of different things that the white brethren were willing to do in order to make things better, but yet not have colored conferences. And, right. and, and, and that that itself was helpful to some extent but the thing that <laughs> the thing that they um, naively included was more openness in worship of blacks with whites and that right. that of course didn't happen and it was about 14 years later when they got black colored conferences at that time that the, one of the premises for colored conferences and one of the things the brethren reminded the white leadership about 
was that all this talk in 1929 about um increasing fellowship didn't happen. It just didn't, right. just didn't happen that there was resistance, and especially in the South, uh, where they, mm. they pretty much ignored the resolution of 1929. And of course, if it were ignored in the South, which is where most blacks lived, and 90% were in the South, uh, yeah. it, it just wasn't working. Right. Um, what are some What are some things that we can take away from those uh, missed opportunities? I guess you could call them. Well, I, I think the biggest thing is something that is true even today, and that is that cultures are usually so real that ethnic ethnic solidarity is so real that it is unreal to try to write down on a piece of paper some schedule or methodology for trying to homogenize the cultures. Hmm. And that we must be careful not to call that prejudice. I don't think it's prejudice when Japanese and Chinese, all of whom speak English practically, but they still have Japanese churches and Chinese churches. And it's not because they couldn't dissolve those churches and all go to some other church, but you know the culture speaks to them in ways that helps to configure their worship style and their worship understandings. And we ought not call that prejudice. It's cult. Right. It's cultural pull. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some kind of identity that you ident- right. will identify with. Right, 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 yeah. right. And we have labeled it. We have labeled it. Pre- we have labeled it racism and prejudice ignorantly, in my opinion. Right. Yeah, yeah, so that we talk about white flight. Well, you can't blame white people for not hanging around when a whole bunch of black people flood their church in a certain suburb or city. Whites leave. And some of it is prejudice, I'm sure, but I don't think most of it is. I think in that event, it's because they don't resonate with the way black worship forms itself. And in fact, I don't resonate with some of that worship myself. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I I don't blame them, you know, and I think we we um, we learn we learn that they're not only there's not only cultural pull, but that even within the cultures there are disagreements and there are um, deviations or what different ways that it's done, and, right. and we should be very charitable we should be very charitable to a group that wishes to worship where the worship forms speak most passionately and uh, most meaningfully to their inner sanctum of spiritual and religious need the last part of your book deals with something a little bit more recent uh, about 20 years ago um and the struggle for basically a retirement system <laughs> for people serving in the 
regional conferences. Uh, could you explain that a bit more? Yeah, the book has four protests. The protests for full integration, which failed. Then mm -hmm. the protests for black conferences, which succeeded. And right. it succeeded very surprisingly when Elder McElhaney, who was president of the General Conference at the time, called the black leaders together in 1943 and said, I think you brethren ought to have your black conferences, your colored conferences. And that really shocked and surprised them. But anyway, it worked, and that's when the black conferences began. And, but in 1969, the third protest began, and that was the protest for black unions. And that lasted mm -hmm. until 1981, and there were three votes against that. Each, each It was voted on three times for various reasons. And if anybody's listening to this, get the book, and you'll hear those reasons. I won't try to go over them now. But the third, right, the yeah. third <laughs> one was in uh, 1981, and the black union protests failed. So the integration thing failed in the early part of the century. The black conferences succeeded beginning in 43, 44, the middle of the century. The black union uh, was defeated in final vote in 1981. And that was because even though the black leaders felt that things would move better and faster in the black communities, if the black conferences were all together instead of having them scattered in, in the union among the other sister conferences, the state right. conferences, white conferences. But that failed. And that's because people, most people felt that it would be better to work for change in that system than changing it to a new system. And then along came the fourth protest, which was a protest for an equitable retirement. Now, that protest was uh, generated by the following. First of all, black conferences, while they put in the same percentage of money into the uh, retirement fund that operated mm -hmm. by the North American Division, and the retirees got the same dollar amount as their white colleagues, they recognized couple of things that they felt were inequitable. One, blacks were not living or do not live, still as a fact, as long as whites. Right. The American blacks usually die six, seven, ten years before a white born in the same hospital on the same day. I think it mm -hmm. may be a little less now. Longevity gap is, is lessening. But back then, even in the year 1998, when this protest was begun, it, it was several years, let us say. So yeah. they said, hey, we're putting the same amount of money, we get the same dollar, but we don't live as long to enjoy it. That's number one. Number two, they also came to the realization that their money, that is the input into the system from the black conferences, and there were nine of them, eight at first, then nine, was going to <clears throat> support retirees from schools and institutions that didn't hire any blacks at all. There were no blacks hmm. to speak of in our publishing houses or in administrative offices in our universities 
and some other places, institutions, which were not and do not contribute to the retirement fund. Right. So they said, hey, we can't get blacks to work at the Review and Herald or Pacific Press or be in administration at Loma Linda or Andrews. Why should we be, why should our money go to help them or their, right, their yeah. retirees? So that, that was an issue. And then the third matter that piqued them was the fact or the knowledge that the black retiree came to the end of the line without, generally speaking, the same percentage or amount of intergenerational wealth as the white retiree. It is a fact that in America, white Americans receive inheritance, I think the figure is something like 10 times more than blacks do, and that those Mm -hmm. amounts are five to 10 times uh, greater than those that any black retiree might look forward to. So there was just this inequity and many of our black widows whose husbands had died and our system at that time, I'm not sure what it's like now, said that when the pastor pastor died, the retiree, his widow would get 50% of whatever it was he got. And I've had some black widows kin to me. In fact, one was my aunt who was a daughter of the very Edda Little John who accepted the gospel in 1895 and was one of the original 16. And Oakwood called right. me in tears. And I was mm. a vice president at the time of the GCC. And Calvin, what can you do? Uh, my husband died, and all I'm, wow. all I'm getting is $400 a month. Well, the retirement amount for him, he hadn't been in the church, uh, pastor had loaned up yet the full retirement benefit. But he was getting $800 a month when he died, and when he did, she was getting $400 a month. And um, they didn't know he had died, so they kept sending her the money, and evidently she didn't know to report it. Maybe she should have. So Mm -hmm. when they caught up with it, they stopped sending her any money. She wasn't getting anything. And Mm -hmm. she was just having to live from hand to mouth and by the... Uh, grace of her children. So there were things like that going on that were just heart-wrenching and uh, that made retirement a very unpleasant prospect. And another thing is that blacks throughout the centuries, uh, throughout the decades of the 20th century, um, were slow to catch up with white Adventists with the idea that maybe Jesus wasn't coming tomorrow or next week. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe he, he maybe in the great plan for the salvation of the world and the protection of the universe, maybe his plan meant beyond my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And that didn't dawn on us very, very, very quickly. Didn't dawn on me very quickly. Didn't dawn on my progenitors. Whereas my white brethren, when I went to work in the Southern Union as a an assistant in the ministerial department in nineteen seventy in nineteen nineteen <laughs> let me get it straight in nineteen sixty seven 
I was amazed to find out that the brethren in the union office there were in all kinds of investments, stocks and bonds, and they were buying refrigerators and selling them in cars and, and had real estate. In fact, if you go to Atlanta around Decatur, Georgia right now, you see streets that were named, that are named after administrators in the conference office who were buying property and building houses. Streets. Not for their, right. not for their evangelism, but because they bought property and invested wisely. Well, blacks weren't doing that. My grandfather, who married that Etta Little John, who came into the church in 1896, Elder Bradford, senior, the father of the first black vice president of the North American Division, and the only one. Bradford, when he died, we had to take up an offering to bury him. Wow. Black Blacks were not figuring on dying. They weren't figuring retiring. They 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 were put, they were pushing all out, knowing that Jesus was coming, and it was only into the sixties, seventies, and beyond that we began to invest and take long range insurance uh, seriously. Uh, so that's one of the reasons we had nothing when we retired, right. because we weren't planning on retiring. <laughs> Jesus was coming. And it was almost heresy to talk about something way down in the next century. Right, so, the long haul, yeah. So, so that was all. That that was not white Adventism's fault, but nevertheless, it was a variable that made it necessary. These brethren who put this protest on uh, to do something to. Uh, to help make up and and get the black retirees on better footing. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> that's uh, just winding down the the conversation here. I just want us to to reflect a bit on uh, on this book a bit. Um, who is this book uh, directed to? Who are you writing it to? To the. Seventh-day Adventist Church in general, but hopefully to non-Adventists as well as a template for change and encouragement for being able to be a Christian and at the same time a an activist for social justice. Hmm. And um, uh, how would we apply uh, this this uh, very rich history uh, with all its ups and downs to any struggles that are uh, upcoming? You know, uh, right now the big the big word in 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 the Adventist circle is is unity and 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 loyalty, um, and it seems like it's just a repeat of all this. Uh, Like the history is just repeating itself. What lessons? Uh, how, how can we apply these lessons into our into our world uh, today? I think first of all, we need to be careful how we define the word unity, and we have, we need to be careful how we define the word separate, and that we should relax and realize that the church is not a melting pot. I think we are confused 
with the uh, melting pot philosophy of the, some of the founders of this nation who believe that all of our ethnics and various social groups could be put into one pot and that the result would be this uh, universal, um, altogether individual who is comprised of all of our ethnic groups. That has never worked for distinctive minorities. It certainly hasn't worked for blacks. And it works very, very weakly for any other ethnic group that is defined by color or accent or a strongly different cultural um, unit. So I, I think that's number one. I think we have to stop and give some credence to sociology. Mm-hmm. We have to, we have to give credence to anthropology and sociology and history and not be simplistic in our use of separate and unity. And, right. and that we realize that the church is a flower garden with many different flowers and colors. Mm-hmm. And they are blended into one mosaic that is powerful and beautiful. That it's not yeah. an homogenized group. We're not homogenized. We're different. And we should relax and enjoy the difference and be tolerable, tolerating and accepting and learn from each other. Shouldn't be isolated. We should realize that segregation, the opposite of segregation is not integration. The opposite of segregation is desegregation. Desegregation. And desegregation says, I can go to any church I want to go. I can go to any school I want. I can marry whomever I wish. Integration, as is generally understood, is we all have to be in one place. Assimilation. Yeah. Hmm. And I'm not saying that's the way it ought to be viewed, but that's the way it is viewed. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we confuse ourselves and we spend a lot of energy working down the wrong avenues. But I think if we relax and say, well, we're all different, let's enjoy the difference and let's learn and grow and let's realize that indigenous leadership is much more powerful in any community than alien leadership. Right. And if the Hispanics or the Asians or whoever say we need a conference here to to better work our community, we ought not tell them, no, you can't do it. I call it, oh, love that will not let me go. (laughs) You know, I don't want that kind of love. Mm-hmm. I want the love that allows me the the creativity to do the best I can for where I am. And that might not always be a black community, but wherever I am, I, I want that to happen. So how can we apply what the book is trying to say? We can say relax, study, love, and um, remember the self-determination, modified self-determination, even in a religious structure. Is is legitimate, and, right. and that alien leadership does not accomplish uh, what indigenous leadership can. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, 
Now, um, where can we find this book if we were so inclined to to buy it? Uh, I read the font recommend it, um, but where's it? Where can we find it? It can be ordered from the Book and Bible Houses by now. I would hope they all have it. If not, they will. And if not, mm-hmm. uh, they they can be called and asked to get it because it's printed by Andrews Press, one of our own presses in mm-hmm. Barron Spring, or it can be ordered from from the Andrews Press itself, from the Andrews University okay. Press. And right. some people have said they got it from Amazon. So all three sources. Great. I don't I don't know what the uh, what the Amazon connection. I think the it's a nineteen ninety five. Wherever you order it, as I am getting it, the paperback, and that's all there is right now. Yeah. But for sure, the book and Bible house should, should have it or will have it. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, def- again, I definitely recommend this book, Protest and Progress, Black Seventh-day Adventist Leadership and the Push for Parity. Um, great historical uh, source. Uh, I love the, again, like I said, I love the research that you obviously put into it and the primary sources and uh, the appendices full of notes and things that you can go in and um, so that we don't have to take your word for it. We know that you you researched all your, your material. Um uh, Dr. Rock, thank you so much for coming on. I, I thoroughly enjoyed talking with you today. My pleasure, my brother. And let's, let's do it again sometime. Thank you for listening to The Advance. Please join us next time 